Hey y'all, this is Videotic. My name is Joe. My name is Sean. And today we're coming at you with a special episode. Took a little bit of work, a little bit of time and effort to get this one going, but uh, you know what, it's all about, uh, well, you know, Sean, maybe we should just let them hear it from us from a different time. What do you think? Sounds like a fantastic idea. Roll it. Heroes of old, tales of daring, adventure, romance, and intrigue. Myths of gods, monsters, and men. Legends passed down from generation to generation. Starting by speech, transcribed to paper, then displayed on a silver screen. This is Heroes, Tales, Myths, and Legends by Vidiotic. My gosh, that was amazing. It's like no time has passed at all. I know, it's a fantastic, isn't it? The power of the computer. Anyway, to all you lovely listeners out there, that was our intro that we're playing for a new ongoing series that we'll visit from time to time called, as we specified, Heroes, Tales, Myths, and Legends. Our goal with that is to just cover a lot of uh, famous iterations or famous stories and their iterations over the years. Mostly in film and possibly on TV, depending on if it kind of fits the, the flow and everything, and if it kind of is a well-known, well-respected iteration or adaptation of this classic story. Tales passed down from ages, you know, like tales told by word of mouth, like Beowulf or something, to fairy tales by the Grimm brothers, or classic novels, adventure stories, anything like that. It's all on the table. We just thought this would be a really fun series and a great way to kind of introduce to some people maybe some more obscure adaptations that we love or that we haven't even heard of ourselves, but we make, we make ourselves go watch them to further our cinematic knowledge. And this episode, we decided to start off with an adaptation or a story that's been adapted multiple times in cinema and TV. It is actually over here, I have, that has been over 50 adaptations on film and TV of a classic novel by Robert Louis Stevenson that many of you, all of you, honestly, should have, but <clears throat> many of you might have heard of called Treasure Island. 50 is a big number for movies. I mean, that, it's, that's a that's a big number and it's for, over 50 for anything, honestly. Yes, and it's it's a testament to how well this story has been well, stood the test of time. Yeah. Yeah, so th there's going to be a lot of uh, cool, what would you call it, discoveries, discussions, whatever, with all these classic stories because they all have been kind of the idea of the series is that these are, these are stories that are just integral to our society or the history of our society. And they've, these stories have been told over and over and over again. And sometimes they take kind of weird turns. They take, uh, you know, they they put a they put a new theme on the uh, tale as old as time, as it were. And uh, one of my favorites is actually in this one right here for Treasure uh, Treasure Island. But we'll get to that later. Yes, that's where we enter the realm of the inspired by that you see in the quotations before a film yeah. or TV saga. 
And since they're based on a base material, sometimes they're actually very imaginative. Like we said, we're going to talk about one of our favorite adaptations that's such a strange departure, but still very faithful. It's still really amazing, in my opinion. To those who also might be inspired by it, then you go, I would have never known this was taken off of this story had you not told. But that's, of course, as the saga goes on, as we get with this series. Hopefully this is going to be ongoing. But I'm excited for this one, so... Uh, Sean, I think you had a um, quote by Robert Louis Stevenson that perfectly summarizes, I think, the appeal of the original story. You want to share with our lovely listeners? Yeah, so if you guys have actually read the novelization of Treasure Island, you'll probably recognize this. Or if you watched a certain TV show, you'll also know what this is from. But it is. Hold on. Let me get in my... If sailors' tales and sailor tunes, storm and adventure, heat and cold, if schooners, islands, and maroons, and buccaneers in buried gold, and all the old romance retold exactly in the ancient way, can please as me they pleased of old, the wiser youngsters of today, so be it. Bahar and fall on. And that was the intro to... Robert Newton's Long John Silver TV series. One of my favorites. Very good quote, though, honestly, because it does summarize it very well. The whole adventure on the high seas aspect that the original novel holds, right? You know, everyone had the fantasies of piracy and and what it was, what it actually meant to be a pirate. Or Everyone Mm -hmm. has the fantasy. Everyone knows the yo-ho and a bottle of rum. You know, Disney popularized that. And things like that. And, you know, we've got our iterations of the years. You should mention that is your favorite adaptation is the one we were going to start off with. Because we kind of, we thought for this episode we move a little, slightly more chronological in their release order. And bear in mind, like we said before, there are over 50 adaptations of this story. Possibly even closer to 60 at this point. Who knows? And there's probably going to be more as future, as the future unfolds. But we're just talking about four specific ones today. The first two are our favorite iterations that we've seen over the years. Ones that maybe we watched when we were younger, and we just hold them near and dear because we think, you know what, these are actually very great takes on the the classic tale. And then the other Mm -hmm. two are more off those off-kilter ones we were saying, like more inspired by, or this is the same base story, but many changes are made and little details added or with a flair given that's something odd enough to talk about. Yeah, so the first one we're talking about is Treasure Island. This was made in, well, they're all Treasure Island. But this one was made in 1950 by Disney. And in researching this, I realized, or I was told by the Google, that this was Disney's very first live-action film, which I think is pretty cool. And just furthers the notion that this is a classic story. It is it is Disney's very first live action film, which is ridiculous to me because I had no idea. Um, but yeah, the main star of this was uh, Bobby Driscoll as Jim Hawkins, and then Robert Newton as Long John Silver. Who not only is this my favorite uh, Treasure Island iteration, but really I just really love Robert Newton as Long John Silver. He nails it out of the park for me. Now, it, this performance was actually so iconic that I also discovered that uh, it was his, uh, what would you call it, parlance, his 
his accent, his pirate voice that kind of set the tone for the movies that came after on how they spoke like pirates. So this guy literally set the bar on the pirate accent, which I thought was pretty cool. So to add on to what Sean is saying, I personally had never seen this version. Like when I was a kid or as I grew up, I I just never, I was familiar with it. I knew that Disney made a version. I just never watched it myself. And part of the challenge we gave each other, me and Sean here, was to watch each other's favorite versions and kind of like trade them and, and watch them because we wanted to get their honest opinion on how we saw it for the first time. I can go ahead and say, Sean, that I think this is a very, very good tale. Definitely, like, it, it definitely has that Disney feel to it where, you know, it's a bit, tiny bit safer for kids and stuff, you know, because it really wants to appeal to the audience, but also want to make sure, like, you know, we're telling a story here. We're not going to be very dark, of course, but, you know, this is a, this is still a lighthearted, you know, we're going to make it more lighthearted in moments, but it still stuck to a lot of points that really kind of nailed it. And yes, I think uh, Robert Newton's performance there really did have this like certain like a, a great charm to it. And like you said, if he set the precedent for many years to follow, it definitely was one that would be recorded for that reason amongst many others. But that is a main reason. Yeah, the way he played that, it's like he definitely nails the uh, he's definitely a, he's a, he's a real pirate, right? He's bloodthirsty if you watch him, especially in the show. Like, he is ruthless, he's dirty, nasty, grimy, foul-mouthed, you know, merciless, bloodthirsty pirate. But he is also, like, extremely charming. This guy could charm me into into pirating people. I would do it. If he walked up to my door, knocked on it, and said, a horror matey, let's go, I'm gone, guys. See you later. Bye. You're not going to see me again. <laughs> I'm going with Long John. Uh, yeah, it's he plays that dichotomy so well in a way that I have not seen others do it nearly as well. And that might be because he kind of left his imprint on my mind when I saw him first and then, you know, fell in love with it. But be that as it may, brilliant, brilliant performance. Yeah, and I think, to be honest, a lot of people might hear this, even those who are familiar with it might think, yeah, but you know, it's not really a... The story is so much more mature than Disney could ever make it. And it's like, you know what? It's, I had the same opinion, folks. I will be honest. I really did. Like, I thought, oh, this is going to be a bit too saccharine and a bit too kid-friendly or something. But I'm like, you know, it's it's a good adaptation. I don't think it's amazing. I'm sorry. I'm not going to grade it as saying, well, this is a masterpiece of a film. But I'm like, it's a good adaptation. And I think for adaptations, that's what you want to aim for is, like, you don't need to be a masterpiece of a film. But if you nail the source material with your casting, with your adherence to many of the, like, in my opinion, some good lines that don't need changing or simplifying, Mm -hmm. then, you know, to me, it's like, if I say that was a good adaptation, you nailed it. Sure, you could be a great adaptation, too. But those are kind of rarer to me, at least subjectively. And to me, I'm like, no, this ticked all the boxes for me. It's an adventure on the high seas. I got my characters I know and love from, you know, from watching it before, from reading it. I think one thing that's interesting is that I would say, at least from watching this one, of the four that we're talking about, this is probably the youngest Jim Hawkins. Like, just in, so, in, our, yeah. in our four iterations that we're talking about. Because like we said, there's, there's so many of them, but we're talking about these four mainly. And I would say, yeah, with a young Bobby Driscoll, who was a favorite for Disney after you know following that 
But yeah, like Bobby Driscoll went on to do many things for Disney, inclu- including another iconic animated film, Peter Pan. So oh, was he the voice? He was the voice of the Peter Pan. I didn't know it's that. It's just after he grew older, of course. You can hear the difference of Jim Hawkins to Peter Pan. Yeah. The boy who never grew up, but he actually did. <laughs> all lies, people, all lies. He grew up. They lied to us. But yeah, as I say, he's probably the youngest one, and more so, I would say, what the novel, the original story laid out. I think Jim was supposed to be actually in that age range, and I think it's because of working with like child actors and stuff. It's a difficult thing in movies, right, to work with children. And I'm not saying because they're always they're bad or something. It's because you know sometimes they're just young enough they don't understand like how to act. And I'm not trying to be insulting to anyone out there. There are some that really get it. And I've been impressed by some child actors over the years that I'm like, wow, they are actually really good and on par with, like, many adults who are trained. But, you know, with kids, like, you know, you can tell them one thing and they can do their best at it. But it's like it's hard to get it to that point that's easily conveyable or someone who can just get it. Mm -hmm. So I think that's why many adaptations later on and, and, and other adaptations even will take people and age them up a bit and be like, yeah, we'll change that because we need someone older who understands what to do. But this is like the first one I think that's actually closer to the age range of the original novel, which makes it interesting because like you are seeing this more so from a child who's going on this adventure. How old was he supposed to be? Like, what, 10, 14? I thought he was between like 10 and 12 or something. That might have been it. Because I'm like, he wasn't a teenager yet. He was still like a boy, but he was an older boy. Yeah. Like he was not six or six, seven or eight, in my opinion. (laughs) You know, six year old boy with a pistol. (laughs) <laughs> that's about right which by America. the way i have to be honest that that still made me laugh because i'm like man the things of like you know regarded like in the watching the movie it's just like he comes into the kitchen with silver and just like oh see this like old flintlock pistol this is real silver on the side i got this from admiral hawk and be like oh here you want it <laughs> <laughs> it's just like here you go kid tuck it hey in. <laughs> i mean back then you had to be rough I mean, he yeah. even does say it later. He's like, you know, you just got to watch out for yourself. He's like, but if I can, like, you know, you seem like a trustworthy lad. But it's just funny because it's like, you know, just like, oh, yeah, sure. I give the kid a firearm. That's fine. Smart as paint. I could see that right off. Smart as paint, ye are. Bring in a guy who would enunciate everything or like be the one that kind of adds to that. You know, that's the whole, the whole edition of the R for pirates, right? Mm-hmm. And that's, that's where we get it. Basically, everyone says like, you know, Everyone knows pirates say "ar" and "yo-ho" and everything, and it's like it was more from this movie, folks. You know, this is the one that really cemented it for people. Like, oh yeah, this is it, like piracy. Yeah, I mean, how much more iconic do you get than becoming the template for the the modern day pirate, or not modern day, but the pirate? What would you call that? Ethos. That's pretty iconic. If you're the template for the pirate. That's pretty hardcore. <laughs> you don't get much more iconic than that. Oh, definitely. And I know to this uh, film's credit, I will say there are other things that I thought were interesting. The beginning kind of threw me off because I'm used to seeing it flesh out a bit more of some of the things like the book did. But then I realized the book kind of did the same thing. The adaptations I've seen took some more time to kind of flesh out a part here. But then it's like, you know what? This This one already takes into account like, you don't follow Captain Bones arriving at the Benbow Inn. You follow Black Dog mm-hmm. looking for Bones. To be fair, I know they were trying to like adapt it shorter to fit a screen time that was decent. The movie's only an hour and 36 minutes. 
which is, uh, you know, an, about an average film, I'd say it was an hour and a half to hour 40. Especially back then, it was like, you know, they were like, you know, can't be too long, which nowadays we've got our two and three hour movies. So that is neither here nor there. Yeah, it's odd because it actually kind of traded off on, uh, what would you call it? My brain's not working right now. F- on flushing out some areas of the story where other versions didn't. Like uh, your favorite version, which I watched, I noticed that they kind of traded off like one film focused on this area and then the next film focused on this area. So like the introduction of Long John is a good example. In this first version, you get a much longer first look at Long John Silver. So you see him first meeting and kind of uh, talking to the Admiral and the, uh, the Dr. Livesley. And you can kind of see him, in retrospect, if you go and watch it again, you can kind of see him worming his way into their little expedition. And you can see how charming he is and how he actually pulls it off. Which oh, they definitely. Kinda, which they kind of skipped over a little bit in other versions. But then other versions, you know, it's a long book. So there's a lot to you could bring up or leave out. Yeah, and I would say, like, with this one, I agree with you. That was a great area to focus in on. That's probably why it also helped cement Robert Newton's performance there was because when they showed that he was smarter than he let on, because mm-hmm. he takes advantage of Squire Trelawney's vain attitude and more so, like, bombastic nature to just jump in and do something when he kind of lets in, like, oh, well, I know some folks that could crew your ship. Oh, they're not a sight to look at, but they know their work. And he's just like, you know, appearance be hanged. Get those men silver. Like, oh, of course, sir, of course. And you know mm-hmm. all along, he knows all along what his plan is. He's already heard about the whole, you know, map. He, he is the one that's the connection to Flint. He's the one. He's scheming. He's conniving. And I like how it's, to me, I agree with you. that They, they show that very excellently because it's like they focus a bit more time on that to show that he's the one that's kind of more planning and doing things. And I like how they even had it for like people who might not have even read the book, which, again, it's like shocking. Because even at that point, there had been some adaptations in film even. I think a few silent adaptations and things like that, and a few, a few talkies. But Disney's one was probably the one that was, like, like we said, one of the bigger ones to add a lot more to the table. And one of the ones would be like when he's wording things in such a way that people who read the book know what he's saying. But people who are just watching this film, I can imagine even for back then for the first time, like when he says to the one guy whose who's flintlock pistol is discovered tucked in his belt. Mr. Arrow, you know, warns him and scolds him. And he's just like, you know, I'll take that mad thing. And he's like, don't talk harshly, Mr. Arrow. I'll make sure that, like, you know, he's taken care of. But he doesn't stress, like, you know, the I'll so much as he just says, I'll just make sure that he's taken care of, like, while we're on this ship. Saying it loud enough so that they can, it's misconstrued mm-hmm. for the better. But you know those who know know that it's for the negative and they're what he means by taken care of is taken care of it's one of those stories where i wish i could kind of erase it from my memory and then go back and watch it or read it for a first time because it pulls that off very well where if you know you know but if you don't you're going to be surprised and then have to go watch it again I agree with you. I kind of wish I could erase certain stories and things because I would love to experience this for the first time again. Just because I'm like, it's such a, it is such a fun story. There's a reason it's a classic, folks. It, it really is just, it captures all these fantasies, this this yeah. idealized view of certain things like piracy and whatnot, but adventure, the high seas. I would partially argue it is more like also a coming of age story. 
Jim is confronted with all these adult themes and things. And it's kind of like forcing of this is the tough, rough and tumble world you live in. And this is like, you know, you've got to step up to the plate and you've got to learn that there's a point where you are a man. It is the quintessential adventure story, right? It has everything. It's got the young kid having to leave his home he's never left before. And suddenly he's thrust out into the world in a chaotic, dangerous situation. And he comes out of it. And you've got the buried treasure, right? You've got the betrayal. You've got the whole relationship between him and Long John, uh, Jim and Long John. And everything that makes an adventure story an adventure story is in this story. It's just, it is the quintessential one. And I think that's an interesting point. It's like, it's never really hugely fleshed out in many adaptations of the relationship between Jim and Long John. Personal opinion again, this one is not as fleshed out as I think it could have been because it has sparse moments of showing through as opposed to really being stronger. It's still good. It's just not quite, I don't know. Do you kind of get what I'm saying? Because mm. I'm like, I'm not, I'm not saying it's not there. It's definitely there. And like I said, one of my favorite things is like in the ending when he's always like when Jim's basically the one that's in his way to whatever. And he basically shows that through all this, he's like, I'm not going to kill a kid. You know, he's like, I'm not that bad. In a way, they did kind like of flush out their uh, relationship in the TV series as well. TV series in the TV series. Like, I think the first episode is literally Long John taking his crew to kind of rescue Jim Hawkins. Um, they kind of they go away from the original novel because it's a sequel and they're just, you know, it was a very popular movie back then. And so they were capitalizing on that. And so they kind of make up their own story as they go along. And the first thing they do is reunite Long John Silver with Jim Hawkins. And then the story progresses from there into the rest of the TV show. And to me, it's like there's a lot of central themes you should check off if you're doing an adaptation. To me, like this one was successful in that. So I'd say from my opinion of someone who's never seen it before, this uh, before talking about it here, it got my thumbs up. I'm like, you checked off a lot of boxes for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, like I said, not like an amazing cinematic masterpiece or anything. And I'd say even for the time, it was still like people said, this is a very solid film. But it's like, to me, that's what I think it is. I'm like, it's still a solid film. It's fun. It's adventurous. It captures a lot of more of the fantastical side. And, you know, what's funny is like a lot of people, especially our age, you know, Sean, are not going to be as eager to watch something made like that because they'll think, oh, it's more of a kid's fair. And if there's a way of acting that's different, you know, they might find that silver too much. And they'll be like, you know, oh, Squire Trelawney and the Doctor talk too bombastically and very too British. And that's what I think. Are you sure this is the thing's huh? But it's like, yeah, know, that's it, what I was you saying. Have to just look at it through the veil of like, this is at the time, you know, this was the acting like this wasn't really viewed as overly done. And sure, I think aspects of it were overly done because it was Disney. They're trying to show more like a bit more. So, you know, the characterizations more. So in my mind, at least I'm guessing so younger audiences could kind of get it more. So I mentioned this when we talked about this interpretation a few episodes ago, I don't remember how we got on it, but the the acting in here is because remember, all right, guys, the very first live action Disney movie, right? This was a while ago. This is the, it's not even the fifties. This is nineteen fifty. It was the first fifty, the very first fifty. 
right? Mm-hmm. And so the acting in this film is much more understandable if you're familiar with theater acting because that's what this stemmed out of. And so the characterizations, the way they the way they speak, the way they frame their uh, blocking in terms of like you standing where, it's much more akin to theater than it is modern day cinema. And if you understand that, then you'll get it. If not, you may kind of feel like a fish out of water a little bit, but still definitely worth watching. I grew up on all these old movies. So for me, it's just my natural habitat. But yeah, some people could get a little uh, thrown off by it. If you're of the more modern sensibilities of acting and the schools of acting, then yeah, it's kind of like, at least on the film side. Like you said, if it's you're more familiar with theater acting, and I'd even argue this has a touch of characterization from animation. Because like we said, Disney's first live yeah. action movie, but mm-hmm. they had done animated films at this point. So there's a difference of kind of learning when to do show more and be more bombastic with an animated character, for example, when you can actually show a lot more visually, of course, because you can design them to be totally not human if you need. You know, you could be animal, you could be just object, obscure, random thing. But you need to be kind of like the voices had to be more because they're expressing more through a 2D drawn image. It's still good, in my opinion. It's just like you just have to view it through that. Even then, animation back then was a lot darker than it was today. People kind of forget that. They think uh, cartoons are cartoons. No, no. Go back and watch some old ones. They were uh, they got pretty dark. But, you know, that, that that's besides the point. Sorry, folks. We're just... Do it sometime. But for now, listen to us talk about Treasure Island. So yeah. so this first one, though, got my seal of approval. And I think with that, I'd like to move on to the next one, which was my choice. This is the one I grew up with when I was younger. I didn't watch it as a kid, per se, but when I was about actually 12, 13, I think, or maybe even, excuse me, something like that. And to me, this was like, it still is to me, just my personal definitive version. Because I think it checks off a lot of boxes as a movie. It's still solid. It was made for TV with collaboration with the BBC. And I think like a a certain channel then. Like might have been Channel 4 or something like that. One of those uh, bigger names in Britain. And it was made by collaboration with that. It's It was made for TV, but it's a solid adaptation. It secured a lot of talent. Of course, I would say what it's called, but it's just called Treasure Island. Moving along, it was released in 1990, and this one clocked in at 2 hours and 12 minutes. So I think it was a TV movie, but it also was like slightly treated like an event because there were commercial breaks, I think, or something. A lot of uh, casting in it. It's like great, respectable talent. You had Christian Bale in an early role here, and I think he was actually around 16 or something at the time of this movie. 15 or 16. So he was more of an older Jim Hawkins, but it's early role of his. I think he's a good Jim Hawkins. You had Oliver Reed, who was a small part in the beginning as Captain Billy Bones, just solid actor. I've, I've listed him, I think in, in belief when I listed my favorite actors, he's definitely one of them. He's just Mm -hmm. such a good performer. A small role as blind pew was Christopher Lee, which surprised me because I did not, I still have trouble connecting that it's him because it's so different from I've seen him and his iconic voice. If I hadn't known that was him playing it, I would not have even realized it was him. Because it's really hard to recognize him. 
like it, like I said, it, it still stumps me because I'm like, that's a really like hard tell. But mm. then it's got other people I'm familiar with, but they are they are more like British actors, and I didn't see them. They're just very dependable, but they weren't like triple A name Hollywood stars. So naturally, as a kid, I wouldn't have seen them and stuff or be familiar with them. But I saw them in a lot of BBC productions and shows. People like James Cosmo, solid performance. All these guys I love, Pete Postlewaite, which if you guys don't know who he is, uh, you should. He's just a very solid, dependable presence. He's in there as one of the crew. Great, great stuff. But the big name for this movie, the big draw, is because it has one of my favorite Long John Silvers. Robert Newton is a great one. But to me, like one of the most iconic ones that I've seen and still love, no shame on Robert, but is Charlton Heston. He's one of my favorite actors of all time. He is like my favorite actor of all time. And he just like nails this this iteration, in my opinion. It's just a solid role. And like I said, to me, this is one of the definitive versions. I, I go back and watch it often. I love it. The performance, the line delivery is from Charlton. You know, I remember... From this film, I love the performances. It's it's all, it's just something about it. I just love it. Like as a TV movie, I'm like, this is still a very solid movie. Sure, cinematography might be slightly, you can tell, like it's not on par with like a huge budget production, but it's still really good. And you know, I'll just pass it over to you, Sean, because this is the one I I wanted you to see. Well, I told you I watched it, but I lied. No, I did watch it. I actually quite enjoyed it. Uh, Christian Bale was great as Jim Hawkins. I thought he did a really good job. And it's really fun to see him uh, kind of young. Uh, but it wasn't as weird as I thought because he's in so many movies as a kid that it's like, you know, this doesn't even feel weird. It's just young Christian Bale. He's just, he's been going nonstop forever. And then I was obviously happy to see Oliver Reed because I love him especially out of uh, Oliver Twist. And then, uh, yeah, uh, Charlton Heston really pulled it off. It was kind of a darker role for him, although he may have had other similar ones. I don't know. I'm not the biggest uh, connoisseur of Charlton Heston, but he's usually more of that, uh, you know, stand-up, leading man, mostly clean-shaven unless he's playing Moses. Um, <laughs> so kind of a different turn from him here as Long John Silver, but yeah, he pulled it off. Funny bit of trivia to anyone interested is um, it's a great version. I encourage you to look it up if you can watch it. I don't know if it's streaming anywhere. Well, actually, I see that it's on Prime Video, so that is an option. But also the DVD you can find on Amazon, which when I learned there was a DVD, I think I bought that sucker so fast my like keyboard was smoking. Interesting trivia is that this film was directed by Fraser C. Heston, who is Charlton's son. And he directed like uh, many like smaller movies and projects for like BBC and things and, and other films. And it, it was this adaptation where he just was like, you know, I really want my dad to play it. So, you know, he's like, Dad, I want you to be this role. And it's kind of like, you know, you sure you don't want to give it to someone else? He's just like, I really think you would like fit the bill. I want to see you do this and... Like I said, with as solid and dependable of a of a lead as Charlton was, and like you said, Sean, it was he was more so like heck, two of his biggest films I'd argue were biblical epics. One was based on the Bible with Ten Commandments, right? And then the other one is inspired by events and utilizes like, you know, over events a court recorded in the Bible in Ben Hur. 
So it's like to see him play, like you said, a, a shift of someone like this to, or someone like that to someone like this, a silver, where he's like he's more, he is definitely still conniving. He cares for himself. He is a pirate, you know. He he embodies more of that, you know, darker kind of piracy side of like all for one and none for you. <laughs> yeah, like he's such a good actor that he just nails it. Like I said, his deliveries of lines in this is just like. I don't know, some about it just to me. Like, I- I'm going to gush a little bit over it. And it's, again, I want people to understand, I loved Sean's recommendation and his favorite. I think it's a great adaptation. It captures to me more of the fantastical side. This one, I will admit, is more so of like the quote-unquote serious aspect of like films where they kind of took away more of the fantasy and kind of showed slightly more realistic fantasy, if I could say, with slightly more focus on the realistic as opposed to, like, vibrancy of the imagination. Not to its detriment, but it's just more so, again, the difference of the time periods and everything, you know, how they would take the source material, but it's a solid one. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Like I said, my main thing I would encourage people to look up, just look up scenes from this one. Look up just, like, you know, Charlton Heston, Long John Silver. Just to get a, a view of how he would say these lines, like these deliveries are to me, like I quote them all the time. When you first meet him, to me, it's such a good shot and scene, just because everything's running. He's kind of shrouded in actual shadow from his kitchen area. Jim goes to fetch him. He's like, "Go, go find him at the at the like the tavern inn. His name is Silver, Long John Silver. They called him affectionately. Um, like he was a crew in Admiral So and So's like a uh, ship, and he was the cook. Lost his leg in battle. I'm afraid." Like, but he's a solid fellow. Help me find the crew. Jim, go down there and catch him. Like, fetch him for me. Tell him, no, we cast off tomorrow. Jim marches down. Seedy part of town, right, in Bristol. Gets to that area, like, surrounded by a lot of ilk of people. And, like, he can definitely tell they're all greasy, dirty. They already look just like, you know, not the kind of person you'd want to talk to about your finances. <laughs> but he just, like, you know, asked the guy, like, where, where is he? And it actually turned out to be Israel Hands. But, you know, Israel's like, you know, Long John, in the back. I go through here, you find him. Comes in, you hear the thump of the cane. He comes marching in with the one leg and just standing there kind of gruff, just looking like, you know, Long John Silver? Such is my name, to be sure. I would say I had one. It's 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 not a complaint. It is just a uh, a difference that I'm complaining about. <laughs> no. Um, but I... He, Charlton Heston, kind of did go for more of a darker, grittier Long John than the Robert Newton I was used to. Robert Newton put a bit more, uh, a bit more charm and a bit more, oh, what would you call it? Just he greased you up a little bit more. You know what I'm saying? He he could he could melt a little butter. And then Charlton Heston was much more very, not cold, but yeah, kind of cold and. Uh, he didn't smile a lot. He smiled a little bit. Yeah, he smiled more Which than you think. Which still works for I'll the character. Defend, I'll just end the point and difference. say he smiled more than you think, but more so when things were going his way. Yeah. Yes, I agree with you. Like the, the relationship aspect was not really covered well. Like it's they kept a few scenes in there that are still there, like to show that he was just like he grew a liking to Jim. But it's more mm-hmm. so akin to I kinda feel sorry for you. Like, you're thrust into this, it's kind of, like, too much for you when, you're, when it catches up in a way. There's almost a point where it catches up to him, and he's kind of like, you know, oh, it's a bit much for you. I realize that now. 
you know, you were thrust into this just completely unaware. You've already had to do so much and, and see so much. Whereas the other aspects of other adaptations cover the relationship where it's kind of like a, he would see Long John as more of a kind of like a father figure, but also follow him because he's like, you know, I really think this guy's just, you know, he, he's a bit, you know, like you said, he's charming overall. He's, he's gruff around the edges. He's definitely uh, like off-putting at first meeting, but you get to know him. He's a good guy. And yes, I'll admit this, this adaptation does not really have that. Like I said, to me, I got more of a vibe of like, I feel sorry for you because it still has a lot of key points where Jim's learning things and, and Long John kind of teaches him along the way of like this and this thing kind of like here and da da da. But it's not really as much. The only time where it really shows, again, is just where like he won't let Jim die to the pirates when they discover the treasure's already been dug up. Because that's like the thing that's in the original novel. But like, you know, they get there and like, you know, like, where's the gold? Where's the thing? And they find one piece and he pushes Jim behind him and kind of and gives him a pistol right and says, like, prepare for trouble, boy. Like, if something happens, I want you to run. And it's like. Wait. That's nice and all, but in this adaptation, that's not as warranted as the others where he actually cared more for him. And at the same time, what's, what's great about the character... Okay, so no matter what Long John is doing, whether he's being intimidating... Like, he's the most intimidating guy in a room full of bloodthirsty pirates, right? And, he, and I'd say both of them pull it off, both uh, Robert Newton and Charlton Heston. Everyone else is scared of him. And then when he goes into the other room with uh, Squire Trelawney or the doctor, he's very charming. And in both of those rooms, it is made clear to the audience that this guy is super, super intelligent. You know, and this it's all buried under the long pirate coat and the scarf and, and the hat and and the crutch and, and the accent, the R and Matey and all that. Behind all of that is this highly intelligent individual. And so that's really what makes him a great character, I think. And in that scene with Jim, right, when he's defending him, even then you're kind of left to wonder, okay, does he actually care about Jim? Does he actually, has he actually kind of formed this relationship? Or is he just playing the odds where he says, hey, Jim is my ticket out of here to avoid hanging when we get back home. And you don't, I don't think you really know um, because he is this conniving, cunning thing. But you're also kind of left with this feeling that, hey, maybe he actually, maybe he actually saw himself in Jim, you know, because Jim, you know, he he sticks up for himself in these movies, Um, especially towards the end. He kind of gets the hang of it and uh, defends himself you know, makes his own actions. He hijacks the ship and takes it around with his real hands. And so he's doing stuff for himself. And you kind of get this impression that Long John saw a bit of himself as a younger man in in Jim Hawkins. So it's this weird thing where the movie doesn't just tell you straight up what's going on. You got to kind of read into it for yourself. And the fact that you can kind of read that into it is just a testament to the acting and, you know, the writing. Yeah. I think uh, in thinking about it, one of the things is uh, what they chose to focus in on more. So for the Robert Newton performance in that movie, it seems like they really wanted to focus more on besides like the fantasy aspect and the thing like that, right? We're mentioning the kind of like fanciful idealization of it overall. 
they focus more on him being a smart man, conniving but charming, intelligent, and very, very patient, waiting to get his like you know, knowing what time to strike, knowing when to continue, winning when to enact his plans, that his machinations, right? Mm-hmm. But also that he's like he's a at his core, he is a pirate. Yes, he is willing to threaten. You know, he even. Robert Newton's one even holds the knife to Jim early on when he sees this thing's not going his way. And he does the whole, like, you know, you shoot me, and I slit his throat. And it's kind of like, you would do a child, but then later it's kind of like the whole, like, I, I really couldn't do that to you, Jim. Like, it was a spur-of-the-moment thing. But you, like you said, they still kind of have this is he, isn't he thing mm-hmm. that's still kind of balanced well. Long John Silver in this version, the uh, Charlton Heston version, Whilst being a great, like I said, to me, nothing wrong in the performance of either one. It's the tone of the movies overall that capture. And like I said, to me, this is a great adaptation. They both are. This is, to me, is like a, just, they, they tick all the boxes for the story. The core story at its, at its very center is what's important to see. But the line they focus on more is, for this adaptation, I'd say, is the line that talked about Flint scared of no man, but he was cautious of long john mm-hmm. like i know that's and that's a line that's in like the original novel and i think the second adaptation has it in there where they talk about like flint was a feared an old man but long john like you know he definitely was cautious of long john and i think to me that's a core difference of like what they focused in on was that line and be like we need to make him scary mm-hmm. and i'm like you succeeded but yeah, like at a at a slight cost, I'd say to the overall thing of the story, because yeah, it, in the end, like this Long John, Walt's not being awful to Jim, definitely still showed more of a selfish nature, which again is like he was anyway, because he wanted the loot at the end, and then you know when he eventually is able to make his way, it's just at the behest of like, well, I got out, I'm taking some loot with me, see ya, suckers. <laughs> And it kind of has a more dismal tone, which I think is interesting for like this, because it ends with like, there's a lot of narration from Jim Hawkins, Christian Bale's Jim Hawkins in the second movie. And there's a lot of mm-hmm. him saying, and then there's that ending when he sees him just, and it just ends with that, him talking about the future saying, I never saw Long John again. He managed to sail away. Like we couldn't catch him on his ship. He caught the wind and, you know, on his dinghy and we were on the main schooner. We couldn't get, catch up to him, but I made it back home to England. And, you know, sometimes at night I'm still haunted by the sounds like of the ocean and I hear like the cries of the men or something in my dreams and things that I, and it has like this more dismal kind of dour tone. So it kind of focuses more on the, like, like you said, it's kind of a darker adaptation, solid, but different focus. Both of the versions, though different, were very faithful to the source material though. Cause the source material had both of those in there. Like I said, I, the, uh, his uh, Charlton Heston's version was a bit different, a bit more gritty and darker, and I enjoyed it. You know, um, I liked seeing them there. I was really happy to see there was two other guys in there. One was the Pete Postawife, and then the other guy. Oh, what's his name? He played the uh, the one who was like an ex-soldier, I think, James Cosmo as yes. Red Ruth. I was really surprised to see him in there, but it was kind of fun. He's still yes. he's still going today. Oh, yeah. Um, One thing I like about this adaptation was there's a lot of solid people in there, like character actors even. They might not get headlining roles, but when you see them, you love them. Those who know of them, you know, I I love James Cosmo. His character is also great. Like, staving off the first attack of pirates and the whole thing. 
Uh, come on, mm-hmm. man, watch your shot. Sorry, sir. Musket was firing low. Yeah. <laughs> and you, and like, you get that a lot with the old uh, BBC movies. Um, so they're always fun to watch because you're going to have like five or six guys that you know. BBC movies are always cool to watch if you go back oh, in yeah. time. They're many, still pretty good. adaptations of things you'll catch are still great. You know, they, they know how to give a good thing. Particularly would, for me, when you go back and watch the old ones, though, you get all of those, or at least I get all of those actors that I now know and love. And then you go back and watch them, and they're all, you know, randomly assorted in here. And it's just, I don't know. I don't know why that's cool. Because, of course, actors are acting in movies, so we shouldn't be surprised. <laughs> but it's still fun. Like I yeah, said, overall, me, really, really liked your version. It was a good, uh, I thought it was pretty faithful, good adaptation. I bet a lot of those versions of the lines from this film are going to be in your head as well. Charlton Heston's version. Also, Robert Newton said it too, but they're both great, and it's a good line. Them's that die be the lucky ones. Mm-hmm. It's a great line. Then other things like my favorite is when they give Long John the black spot. It's one of my favorite moments in the this film just because I love that the way he does it, the whole thing. Like, you pulled a page from the Bible. What <laughs> you took a page the from the good book? What fool even had a Bible on a ship? It's <laughs> 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 just turning it on them. Mm-hmm. So again, that was a good scene to sit, kind of show the conniving nature. But yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah. still I love like his delivery. Like I said, I I quote so much from that other version, and then. All those things, you know. Hey, Squire Trelawney, thank you kindly. I dare you to thank me, good sir. All these moments and things I, I quote so much from that one. We dedicated more time to these two in this episode, but we do have two more to kind of just talk about to show an example of a departure from the going to more of the inspired by or based on side of film and cinema of this classic story. And the next one I wanted to talk about, or, or we decided to bring up, was chronologically it came out six years after my favorite version, and it's a, it's definitely a big departure because it's not really a quote unquote serious take on it, but it's a one that many people might be familiar with. I personally love this movie, uh, this adaptation. It holds a special place because I've always loved it when I was a kid. I, I was familiar with the the base story before I saw this one, so my view wasn't tainted with any of like this uh, buffoonery that goes on with this film saga and this this uh, lovable cast. But the one I'm talking about is a certain band of puppets created by the Henson Company, and you know, lovingly created by Jim Henson, a true master of I think of a uh, an art form to utilize and utilize it so well. And he created a certain band of puppets called the Muppets. You might have heard of them. I don't know. Maybe. They're kind of famous, you know. And they did one called Muppet Treasure Island. Like I said, we were kind of going weird with this departure. Because we talk about more faithful adaptations of the story. And then we decide, you know what? This is one I want to mention. Because it's, it's the Muppets. To anyone that has watched a Muppet movie before or any of the other classic Muppets films or even like the Disney movies of modern ones, you know what to expect. Hopefully, at least. That being said, though, the Muppets actually are pretty traditional with their, uh, I don't think you would call it reenactments, but when they do versions of different films, they actually tend to stick to it pretty faithfully. Oh, yeah. It's kind of like this is the story, but if the Muppets were in it. It, well, I haven't seen this version, um, but I know like the uh, 
the Muppet version of Christmas Carol is actually, I think, the most faithful adaptation of that story because they literally just take the dialogue right out of the uh, original novel. Is, is that the same here for this? Well, there is some changes because it's not as much talk of like slit your throat and things like that because it is, it is, again, Muppets. It's more family-friendly style, but they're talking about how violent they are and things like that. But it's mm-hmm. like a big change to me would be to let people know is that it's like this is still a good balance of imaginative like storytelling of taking this story. And like you said, Sean, the Muppets are always good about telling these like classic stories like the Christmas Carol is a great one. And we'll talk about that sometime down the road, folks. Don't worry. It's uh, I love that one, too. But this is kind of the, if you're familiar with Christmas Carol, then yes, this would be like the same hit the same boxes for you. It's like watching an adaptation but the Muppets are inserted in if that makes mm. sense like it really is like this is the adaptation but with the Muppets to those about those out there listening if you don't like the Muppets if you never have first of all I, I don't know why but second you know I, I can maybe get it honestly like if you just were always like they're always been ridiculous I never got the appeal I never got why they're so big you know it's just puppets doing something whatever and I'm like it's mostly to me it's the writing the characterizations all the stuff you know that's over the years that makes them popular but I love them. Sure, they've had their mishaps with a few films that are not as good as others, you know, things like that. But I do love them. How dare you, sir. The Muppets are perfect. This is a fun film. And to me, it's set up perfectly to be like, for anyone who's doubting what this film could be, like if it's going to be more kid-friendly, if it's going to be more like, oh, this is going to be more fanciful telling and things. Yes, it's more fantasy piracy. There's a lot of costuming and things and set pieces that really amp the game up. But it starts with, like, the opening credits scene comes in with this cool orchestra, and it's kind of a darker, like, theme, and then it kicks into a song. Now, for people who are also familiar with the Muppets, yes, most of their movies are musicals. They're going to fit in musical numbers, m- numbers in there where they can. And to be honest, this is a good one. Like, the <laughs> first one that kicks it off is, uh, I encourage you, Sean, to either go ahead sometime this uh, this week or... Before the next episode, actually, please watch the movie. And you know, if you don't get to watch it, just listen to the soundtrack. You know, I had like kind of like looked up the uh, IMDb for this movie, and I was just kind of looking at it, never seen it. Knowing it was the Muppets, it never even occurred to me that this would be a musical. But I should have known. <laughs> well, don't let that sour your opinion, please. Because oh, no, no, no. I love, this, I love musicals, and I the love the Muppets. Songs in this are like, if you loved the songs from Christmas Carol, mm-hmm. these are worked on by the same man. Uh, Paul Williams is his name. He's a fantastic songwriter. Okay. He's like just so good. He's a game, mm-hmm. and he worked on the song. Same thing for Christmas Carol. He wrote songs for this movie, and they're like the first one nails the tone because it starts with Flint's men burying the treasure, and it starts with like a kind of crawl to talk about like Captain Flint and his men took his treasure and buried it on this island. And it just starts with this, this opening number called Shiver My Timbers. And <laughs> the lyrics are really good because it's like they're so well written and you're kind of like, in a way, it kind of makes you like kind of double take because you're like, this is a this is a kid's movie, right? Because if you heard this mentioned in something else, you'd be like, huh. It's like, Shiver My Timbers, Shiver My Soul, Yo Ho Di Ho. There are secrets that sleep with old Davy Jones. Yo, ho-dee-ho. 
And some of it's kind of like, you know, it's like when I say it like that, you're like, eh, it's kind of bland and all that. And I'm like, that is fair. It's because you're not a pirate. It's a it's a great opening because it, it just nails the thing. And there's like lines in there that one of my favorites, and the buccaneers drown their sins in rum. The devil himself would have to call them scum. Hmm. I'm like, that's genius. Like, that's actually a good line. The devil himself would have to call them scum. And it changes like keys and it changes to like, it is just the procession of them going through the swamplands. And of course there are puppetry at work. Like the rocks sing, they're like stone heads that chant on the Island. Mm-hmm. They look like Easter Island heads and they just had the mouse that moves and they talk about things. And then it like shows mosquitoes singing an alligator in a swamp and it passes around from the pirates singing to like the puppetry and stuff. And even the skulls on the wall sing in one scene. But the last part is really good because it just nails this. And they never show like Flint's face really. They just have like it cut down from the neck, you know, like the shots and all that. But all the men are dragging the treasure chest across the island in rhythm. They bury it all. And it cuts with like the, the kind of builds in the orchestra. And then it goes to the, the end where it goes like, Shiver my timber, shiver my sails. Dead men tell no tales. And it just cuts off right with a musket fire. And then it just shows Flint marching back alone. And it's the narration by Captain Bones in the tavern telling this story. And it's uh, Captain Bones is played by Billy Connolly. So it's his iconic Scottish accent. Is he still Scottish? Oh, it's Billy Connolly. He doesn't change anything. <laughs> He's sitting in the tavern telling all these other like humans and Muppet cast in there. That cements it for you. Like, If you need to know what kind of adaptation you're looking at, you're looking at this is the story with the Muppets. Because I'm like, those lines are so good. And that thing is great because they're in the pit with the treasure. And all you see is him preparing his muskets, pulling them out. And it's like the that whole shiver my timbers, <clears throat> shiver my sails, dead men tell no tales ends right on the musket fire. And just the cut hmm. right to him walking back to the ship alone. And it's like, that's good. And it just, things like that cement it. Now, the only thing that's really weird to me is that they did change a few things. Jim Hawkins is an orphan in this one. Huh. No real reason why. It's just the person that runs the inn that he works under is not really his mother. She's someone completely different. They changed it from her comic effect. I mean, there's a funny joke in there that she keeps hearing things from outside of the room. Like, she literally is like, three or four like a upstairs and thing like Billy Bones is like, Jim, give me more rum thing like, Give me more rum boy. No more rum for him, he's had too much already And she's like upstairs, like in her room and he's like and you hear it muffled and he just goes, How does she bloody do that? And then like, because, like later they're talking normal volume, they do something and then she's like Have not something like that, quit singing, do a thing and they're like How does she do that? But it's it's the style of humor there and everything. You know, it plays a lot of the same beats. A lot of the people like Squire Trelawney is played by Fon, Fonzie. Or Fozzie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Fonzie. Wow. Hey. I mean, Fozzie. Fozzie Bear. <laughs> Captain uh, Captain Smollett is Kermit the Frog here. You know, oh, all he plays characters. Captain Smollett. You know Sam the Eagle, right? Yeah. He's first mate Arrow. And he comes out like, the, the captain is coming. He's a madman. Or something like, you know, like, is he really that dark? <laughs> I would say that you do not want to cross him. He will make sure you know. <laughs> and they're, like, build it up in this, like, the carriage just comes barreling out the way, like, get out the way, get out the way. Some things get run over, like, carts of oranges, like, packages of things and crates and just <laughs> arrives at the ship. The buildup is the swell. They all get this gruff-looking guy gets out and goes, like, stares at them. And they kind of, like, there's a few people do the gulp, like, the ooh. 
<laughs> and then it like pans over. He just takes his hat off and bows and steps to the side. And it's Kermit. Good morning, everyone. Lovely day, isn't it? And <laughs> gets out like up the rails, like passes his hand on the rail, kind of like, like, good morning, Mr. Arrow. Like, good morning, Captain. And he like just walks by him and like Arrow goes, pretends to dust the rail like with his fingers and goes like, I knew it. He's furious. <laughs> and it's just, it's that style of humor and, and, and wit that this like sets it apart. So they're like they're play a lot of the parts are played there for for laughs and it's it's great though because they just like nail it and then it's got another great Long John Silver. That's one of the things I was looking forward to with this because I know that it is Tim Curry, the one and only baby, and he seems like a really good Long John Silver. For this version, I would argue like he is great. Like, I'm not saying he couldn't do another one, but I just think it, it fits for this one. He is mm. just the right amount of, like, camp with... The the aspects you love about Robert Newton's, to me, is, like, a lot of that is more so in this one. He is way more charming and likable. Uh, one thing they actually did better than any adaptation I've seen, besides our last one we'll talk about, is the relationship between him and Jim. Okay. Like, this relationship is actually way more of, like, a father figure and Jim looking for someone in it. And I guess that's part of why they changed to him being an orphan because it like, he doesn't really have a connection. He just has a person who's been watching him, you know, adopted mm-hmm. him, but like more so as a figure to put him to work. But he's a, he's a great one. Cause the first time you meet him, he even pulls a joke on him and he even has his, his iconic laugh that people know the Tim Curry laugh. He does it. He like, he hams it up as long John in this one. Cause like the thing is like the, what do we got here? Stowaways pulls out a knife, you know, like a chef knife. And like, and we know what we do with stories. <laughs> I'm kidding. Go to me. <laughs> you, know, you know the Tim Curry laugh. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He even has a pet lobster. I Polly. saw a picture of that. Yeah, it's like the whole joke is like, shouldn't it be a parrot? And they both look at each other like, who <laughs> ever heard of a talking bird? <laughs> Just stupid. <laughs> And then, of course, like I said, the, the style of humor is all throughout. It's still a solid one. So if anyone who's like, if you like more, if you like the Muppets and you haven't seen this one, do yourself a favor, please watch it. It is great. I think you will enjoy it. If you kind of want a more lighthearted adaptation, if you kind of like good written songs, the song Cabin Fever just goes all out. And yes, there's a song called Cabin Fever. So while the first one is like amazing because it nails the whole tempo of the movie and what they're doing the second song is a bit more fanciful because it's it's jim singing with his friends who are played by rizzo and gonzo respectively so they're all like working at the tavern they're all kind of the group you follow and they sing about wanting more from life and kind of adventure and things like that and that's kind of like a more standard fare kind of saccharine sweet one you know but then up to cabin fever which i think was the next one or one after that no there's actually another one they're talking about sailing for adventure which is all the crew when they first start out cabin fever kind of sets the tone of like yeah, they're still, it's still stupid. Don't take it too seriously. Because, like, they're sitting there, the winds haven't blown for, like, three days, and you see some of the people looking around, like, wide-eyed, and just like, what's going on? Like, oh, no, it's setting in. And they use camera angles, like, they twist and distort the picture, and, like, the guy stands up like, I'm succumbing to cabin fever! And the guy's like, I've got it, too! And then it just starts this island Caribbean beat song of, like, hey, I've got cabin fever, it's running through my brain. I've got cabin and by the end of the song, they're all doing a conga, and like some of them are even wearing like the coconut bikinis and everything. And just my favorite bit is just the acknowledgement of like the fourth wall break because they end it with like a whole like cabin fever, yeah. 
and then the wind picks back up and it just cuts to normal and they're like they're not they're not in costume anymore they're back in their regular suits and like like oh let's have someone sailing pike up crew let's go yep okay da, da, da. and they just pretend like it never happened <laughs> but then it cuts to the guys who had tried to usurp things and got thrown in the brig any of you guys hear that out there what are you talking about you not hear the music going earlier in the cabin fever <sighs> what are you talking about <laughs> it's just like it's just, I love it. Like I said, it's a style of humor I really enjoy. Just like things like that. One of the best things about this adaptation to me was, like I said, the relationship aspect was way more focused on because when it comes to the finale, when Long John's making his escape in a dinghy with a bunch of the treasure, it comes to the thing where it actually ends in a different way because he's been kidnapped or recaptured back on the boat, and he made his way out of the shackles while everyone's asleep. Made his way at night, and Jim's on uh, wakes up and hears him and has a whistle given to him by the captain to actually be like, you know, if you're in danger, this is what I need you to do. You blow this and you let me know. Mm-hmm. And he's about to blow it. And like Long John's kind of like, boy, don't make me do this. Like Jim. And he pulls out his flint, like, you know, cocks it and like points at him. Like, you know, I don't want to do this to you, Jim. Like, you know, I'm not going to go back to hang. And he's kind of sitting there and he, Jim actually starts crying. And like, you can see him actually kind of tear up like, and he's got the whistle and he's about to, but he's hesitating himself because he can't do it to this man. Like, even he's like, I, I can't. And Long John kind of like holds it there for a minute and then just goes, puts the hammer back down. How you know I can't do that to you, Jim? I can't kill you. He goes, <laughs> how about we do this? I go ahead and go. And you never saw me. Like, you know, and I'll never have to muck up your life. And it's kind of played more, again, more emotionally, which makes it, to me, different than the other adaptations. Well, it, it is definitely a staple of our next version. 100%. That is very true. Just a quick summary of this. I think this movie is a fantastic one. It's great. It's funny. I encourage people to watch it if you have not. It's on Disney+. Plus. Sean, please actually watch the full movie sometime. Oh, it's on Disney+. Plus. It's Well, they own the Muppets now, so they have that one. Oh, that's right, yeah. But it's a, it's a good one. It really is. And speaking of Disney, though, still we have uh, three of them who technically own now. So the first one was Disney's first outing. This third one here, I mentioned the Muppets. Since they own it now, they technically have the rights to it and such. But this last one is solely Disney. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is a, a favorite of mine. Apart from being a Treasure Island story, it's just a really good movie. But yeah, it is a and it's it's the only one of these that's not called Treasure Island. It is called get ready for it Treasure Planet. And we've spoken about it a bit before as being severely underrated. And uh, I'm going to stick by that because it, it's not only just based off of one of the best, you know, adventure stories of all time, but it brings something to it in its own right. You know, it, it puts its own flavor on a classic tale with being like this uh, futuristic sci-fi uh, flavoring of it. But then it also, like we just mentioned, it really digs into that Jim Hawkins, Long John Silver relationship a bit more. And it's it's not a musical, but it does have a kind of music number towards the beginning of the movie, sort of montaging over Jim's backstory, you know, his childhood, his dad leaving, and sort of his own emotional angst, I guess, if you would. It's it's not like a super angsty movie, but he does have that baggage in his head, and it, it really plays into the rest of the movie quite well, I think. 
Yeah, it's definitely like we said again. It's it's a weird one of those like based on slash inspired by, right? That kind of sets it apart. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's severely underrated. I still say like to this day, it's still got like it's got slightly better reviews than it had. But I'm looking at this thing that gave it like I'm looking at IMDb just for example, folks. It just is like seven point one out of ten. I'm like it deserves an eight at least, an eight out of ten. Come on, folks, it's not that bad. And I just saw the people saying, like, at the time, it was in that period, again, we mentioned, like, same as Atlantis. Because it was like, they were not musical movies, they were more serious, they were darker. This one was at least based on something. The Atlantis one was more an original take on, like, the whole Atlantis story and, and theories and things like that. Yeah, like we said, this one was was an adaptation, but then it's such a strange adaptation that I think part of it was some people who might have been more diehards were just like, this is so weird. I'm not sure what to make of it. And then there are people like me who just thought, this is fun. And yeah, like watching it when I got older, I did see a lot more, like we said, the um, a lot more of the relationship was handled in this one, which I think was a much better decision because it really plays out very well. And like you said, that scene with that song break in there, it's the only like really song in the movie. It's not even like we said, I don't, it's not a musical number because it's not sung by the characters or meant to be sung by the characters. It's just like, it's a song break. Like any movie would have a song inserted for any reason. Mm -hmm. And that's part of the reason I guess people are still like, you know, Disney makes musicals and it's like, well, not always. It's, it's a great song. It, it's very good. And that, that compilation, it plays of like the backstory, like you said, talking about his, his own backstory, the sadness he went through, the change they made to that with, actually showing a relationship and a broken one with his, his own father to finding a father figure in Silver who genuinely started to actually care for him and, and actually have the whole relationship angle played up much better. It, if anyone's interested in that song, it's a great song in its own right. It's called I'm Still Here, um, or it might be under Jim's theme from Treasure Planet. Beautiful song. I still listen to it to this day. It's on my playlist. It's sad. Uh, it's really great. Oh yeah, it's it's a good one. Part of my thing that I love is that it, it's kind of a indicative of the pop rock style at the time too. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, <laughs> like early two thousands, and I'm like that. That's it, nostalgia for me, just because like hearing songs like that on the radio. I'm like, if yeah, you were there, you know. Yeah, those who know, <laughs> they know. But another thing to highlight about this movie is the animation, which it, it's it's a kind of animation that if you're our age. This will be pretty nostalgic for you because it has that old animation style where things are like a little bit exaggerated and it's still uh, a, uh, what would you call it? 2D animation. It's, this it's is a before mixture. all of the. It's a hybrid. Yeah, that's true. There's, there's that's elements true. of CG in there. Like earlier yeah. CG where they, I think it works well because there's like, you could tell where they kind of needed it to, to show more and do more with it. And then the characters and a lot of the environments and stuff and other shots are uh, 2D animated. Mm-hmm. it's done well though because like sometimes that hybrid style can re- be really jarring especially for films at the time even that had it because you see an older film or 90s one with cg and you're kind of like yeah. <laughs> I, just, uh, I gotta look away for a second my eyes are bleeding basically uh also a great cast it said uh, features a young joseph godin joseph 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 godin levi yeah joseph yes. gordon levitt it features a young Joseph Gordon-Levitt <laughs> as Jim Hawkins. And then Emma Thompson plays, quote-unquote, Captain... Uh, what's his name? Captain Smollett? Well, 
let me see. But in this one, it's in this one, it's Captain Amelia. Amelia, uh, which she's great. Oh yeah, she's a great captain. Mm-hmm. I love that. And then, like, what's funny to me is that there's only like a handful of very well recognized names in this movie as well. It's kind of like what Atlantis did too. They they turned more towards um, dependable people they knew and probably wanted to work with, but not like nowadays they stuff as many like triple na- triple A actors and actresses that they can, right? Yeah. And I think that's kind of a sadly a detriment to a lot of films cuz like sometimes they're really good voices and actors and actresses in their own right, but they ain't quite got it for voice acting, which takes a whole different dedication and degree. But it's this area had beast. like a different focus because they had some more like they they chose they cherry picked who they wanted. And then they picked some like dependable voice actors and even other actors who could do it for this era. And, you know, like, the only real huge names to me are, like, Joseph Gordon-Levitt, Emma Thompson, Martin Short are, like, the three big ones, I would say. And mm-hmm. kind of lesser known, but still, is Dr. Doppler, because that's David Hyde Pierce. And people would know him probably very well from Frasier, where he played uh, Kelsey Grammer's brother. It's like, you know, he's got a very unique voice, of course, and it fits the character perfectly. But it's like, out of anyone else, it's like, unless you really kind of dug into seeing these, there would be recognizable names. Maybe I see a lot of voice actors I'm familiar with, but then like other older actors that maybe I'd have to research, you know, to be like, oh, they were in stuff like in the years ago or something in in this thing here, but I wouldn't instantly know them. So it's an odd decision, but it still works because I think whoever who's in the film, besides like the the well-known names and everyone who voices other characters, it's all handled well. Oh yeah, definitely. And the the uh, the space odyssey skin on this movie actually really really fits the old timey pirate uh, motif surprisingly well because <laughs> you think they'd be like polar opposites, but it really works. And with yeah. the animation, you get to play with the uh, like different alien species and that, and so you can have these uh, kind of wonky characters like. Like Mr. Uh, what's his name? Israel Hands is mm-hmm. like this super scary crab guy. He's like a crab ant spider thing all combined. Yeah, except he's huge. Yeah, except he's he's bigger. He also has a very imposing <laughs> yeah. voice to me because I'm like, it's one of those like oh, I definitely tell he's evil. Because mm. it's just like what... the whole first time you see him is like the whole cabin boys shouldn't sniff around where they're not wanted. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just like, hmm, I wonder who the evil guy is. Yeah. Well, that's what's great about it is because the way they present the characters as like these different species or whatever, it's less about, you know, it's less about making a cool, a quote unquote cool character design. And it's more about the design of the character is meant to reflect the inner character, I guess. Because so, you know, like uh, Billy Bones you look at him, and just from looking at what kind of creature is, you can kind of tell it really fits with what his character is actually doing. And then the blind pew comes in. It's, it's the same thing. And then, what's his name? Israel actually, Hands. Actually, there is no blind pew in this one. That's a weird one. Is there no blind pew? It's just, uh, remember, it doesn't even, it's not even Bones sitting there. He just crashes. Oh, that's crash right. He lands, just... just goes right from that to he looks outside, and you can see the silhouette of the crew and, like, Long John doing it right, but or in this one they don't call him Long John, they just call him John Silver. He's like this slug thing, and then he just climbs out of the ship, right? 
Billy? Um, he's like a turtle. I believe <laughs> he's a turtle. I mean, you can see like the in the shape of his head and neck because he like stretches his neck like turtles can do that where they stretch their neck out and kind of like turtles tortoisey like that. Mm-hmm. He's kind of like that, up. I think, because he's like at least in the head and claw designs. Like you can see that's where a lot of the basis for his character was in that. At least that's what I always saw. Like I looked at him, I was like, he looks like a turtle and tortoise hybrid sure, thing. Sure. I'm looking it up right now so I can see it again. Oh wow! Yep, that'll do it. He doesn't have a shell, but it looks like he does because it's like very hunched back. But yeah, like I said, I just remember the scenes because he like unnaturally stretches his neck out to Jim, like talking to him, and Jim backs up, but his neck keeps going like. <laughs> but it's a great setup because yeah, like he just crashes. He goes like, you know, sir, are you hurt? You know, are you okay? Like, and then he's about to die. Like the whole like, watch out for the cyborg. You know. Oh yeah, that's the other cool morning. thing. Yeah, and then so when he the... meets John Silver, there's this whole like already this doubt planted there because he goes a cyborg. And he remembers Billy Bones' words. Mm-hmm. But then, like he says, he kind of he warms up to John because John is in this one again. That whole charming, very uh, charismatic version comes through, which really makes him like a good villain figure as well. Yeah, which is another piece that is really helped by the animation. Definitely, because they can kind of bring in this like a bit exaggerated and over the top movement, and you know. It's one of the real advantages that animation has over live action is you can be a bit more exaggerated with your characterizations and, and movements and all that and, and facial expressions. Yeah, and it definitely, it's utilized well in this. Disney was, again, this is such an underrated movie in this time period. I don't know why these movies didn't do as well and everything. It just, it boggles my mind. They deserved more. They really deserve more still. And I, mm-hmm. I, I will, I, you and me will still preach it's, you know, sing its praises. <laughs> This film definitely, like I said, is such a unique take on it. It captures it well. And a lot of elements, like I said, were slightly changed again. But to me, it's like it's still a good, solid adaptation, especially for an inspired by take on it. Besides, a few elements that are played up for like more of a idea here. Like there is no Squire Trelawney figure, if you think about it as well. The Doctor kind of plays both. Yeah. As I said, because the Doctor kind of has the whole excited thing about wanting to do it, but also the the very careful, educated voice of the doctor and everything but like the reason and the excitement is there not a secondary is there not like a another squire in there i believe it's just the doctor it's just the doctor and jim go out remember like they're the ones who set out with the map and then because he's like i said he's the one who's kind of like the squire the doctor was the more level-headed one but and he's very level-headed in intelligence still as a doctor and everything he's the one that's a family friend to them Mm -hmm. right because it's established there and then when the when the end is burned down they have to run he's the one who takes them in and then when he when Jim uncovers it's a map, he is the one that gets like the whole like, <gasps> do you see what this is? This is Treasure Planet. Like this is the map to thing. Let's go. So bottom line, guys, it's a great adaptation. One of my favorite uh, animated movies. And this was Disney, was it not? Walt Disney animated feature film. Yep. One of my favorite and one of the most underrated Disney yes. movies of all time. It's definitely good and. I will say again, one of the best things about this one is the relationship aspect. That one is, is to me, is more of the crux of the story. Yeah. And it works very well because I think it's even cemented better in the end when Davy Jones confronts Jim when they're trying to get out. Did, right? You just said Davy Jones. Sorry. Long gone. They're trying to get away from ending up in Davy Jones or the equivalent in this universe, I guess. Yeah, I guess his name would be David Jonas. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> but 
the confrontation when like even Jim goes like pulls a sword like you know stay back and there's this look on Long John's face right of like utter like you know I think he even says something like I like you boy but you're not getting between me and this treasure and he says I it was such even... like a dripping thing like he even says like and this is the look they give him like the whole like glaring at him but then when Jim ends up in a dangerous situation where he's about to collapse and you know fall to his death right there's that scene where he even goes like John Silver has the whole crisis where he realizes mm-hmm. you know, like no Jim the gold the, the treasure Jim the gold and he even does like the whole like blast me for a fool let's go with the gold saves Jim it's a big mm-hmm. moment it's it's emphasized and to me that's like that's the solid that's the clincher right there because that yeah. shows the the actual growth of him as well and it's like it's such a great thing from like even a few minutes earlier to that whole like Jim don't get in my way like I've searched for this treasure for years you know I'm getting it and I don't care like I like you boy but you're not getting in my way to realizing I can't I gotta save I gotta save the kid you know I can't live with myself if I did this no it's it's just it's very solidly done and yes like it's uh I heartily concur with Sean here watch this movie please I beg of you. If you don't really like, an, if you don't like <laughs> animated films or something, and you're just like, well, I'd rather prefer watch live action, change your stance and just watch this film. If you have one opinion, you need to change it. Okay. Yes. Comply <laughs> to our standards. Exactly. Change yours because you are wrong. If you think something <laughs> about something, you're wrong, and that's why we're here. That's that, that's why we're here, folks. We're here to yes. tell you that you're wrong. Exactly. What, what, you thought we were just two idiots talking about movies we like? No! Where'd you get that idea? I don't know where they got this idea. That's so weird. So there's only uh, a, another two that I've kind of heard of. It, uh, there's another Treasure Island with Eddie Izzard as Long John Silver, which I love that idea right off. Never seen it. Have no idea if it works, but I love that idea. Have you ever seen that one? I think you said you just heard of it. I've heard of it. Is that the one with Elijah Wood? Yeah, the, well. so the three main people on the cover are Eddie Izzard, Elijah Wood, and Donald Sutherland. Okay, so I know two of those names. Really? I bet you, I bet you would know Donald if you actually... Wait, which one do you know? Donald Sutherland and Elijah Wood. You don't know Eddie Izzard? I'm looking at it right now because I probably do and just don't know the name. Oh my gosh, I bet hey, you do. Hey, before There's... you flip out, let me get a look. Oh, goodness. Yes, sometimes this happens, folks. I have to actually take a look and see these things to make sure I know. He's not primarily an actor. He's primarily a comedian. One of my favorites. You're probably not going to recognize a lot of his film work. He'd be much more recognizable. Okay, so do you know the uh, Star Wars cantina joke? If I do, I don't know it now on the top of my head. If you look up Star Wars Cantina and then Eddie Izzard. I bet you would recognize him. I can't say that I know him off the bat though. I'm sorry. Oh gosh, we need to change that right away. Eventually. We'll get on that later though. Eventually. Eventually. Anyways. Yes. So that was one version that I might take a look at later on. And another one is Black Sails, which is meant to be a kind of it's not following the Treasure Island story. It's meant to be kind of a prequel to it. It takes yeah, place no, 20 see, the... years before. Blackbeard might be a character in it, 
but the main character is actually Captain Flint. Hmm. That'd be news to me then. I was yep. misinformed. I, I believe Long John is in there as well. Captain Flint, John Silver, Billy Bones, hmm. which is actually Tom Hopper. Interesting. Yeah, definitely more stuff to add to the list, you know, to eventually try to, to watch and get a get a feel for it, you know. Mm-hmm. But it'd be really interesting to see how they flesh out more of this, so. I will say that with that, that would conclude our first episode on this first of a series, hopefully. We're going to aim to do more in the future of the heroes, tales, myths, and legends. I think uh, this was something that we've been sitting on for quite a while, I know. We we really pushed this one back a lot for you guys out there because we really wanted to give something that we were proud of, and we really wanted to give time to rewatch these movies or, or watch them for the first time even to have a better perspective on them, to be able to talk about them at length. And just, um, again, the idea for this series is not to cover every single adaptation, but, you know, talk about the adaptations and point out the ones we have seen, need to see, like we think we want to see, or, you know, ones we've seen and stood out to us the best. Yeah, to be clear, (laughs) this series is not about covering all 50-plus versions of Treasure Island. We're, talk, we're talking about just classic stories overall. One of the most prevalent being Treasure Island, but like I think you mentioned in the beginning, uh, the Grimm stories definitely fit in here. Oh yeah, uh, like a lot tales, of other ones. Legends yeah, of Merlin, like, you know, probably yeah, Merlin, King Arthur. There's adaptations of King Arthur and his knights. There are probably Robin Hood or something. Robin there. Hood's in there. You know, there's so many characters we mention. Things you've passed in folklore and something. I'm trying to think one of the ones we want to do. Myths is a big one. You know, the Greek myths are a big one. There's so mm-hmm. many adaptations of different mythological figures mm-hmm. and, and those tales there. Not so much of Norse, actually. <laughs> but Greek, yeah. You're kidding me. There are a lot of Greek stories out there. We have Thor. Probably be the main one. Hollywood, get on that. Make some more Norse mythology films. <laughs> I had fun with this one. I really did. Going back and watching a new version, something I hadn't really seen before, going back and rewatching these other versions that I love, you know, and, and just being able to share it with, honestly, with all you guys, but also with you, Sean, because I'm like, you had admitted, you're like, I've never seen the one you're talking about. And I was like, I've never seen the one that you love. So it's fun to just be like, you know, you watch this one, I'll watch that one. And you're like, yeah, because you always want people to like watch it and just share it with, you know, share the share the love. And you really want to come mm. back and be like, did you love it? Did you love it? Did you love it? Did you love it? Tell me you loved it. Tell me you loved it. Even if you lie to me, tell me you loved it. Even if you lie. <laughs> In all honesty, I really did enjoy the version that you love, and I can definitely see why it's one of your favorite versions. By the by, this is the part where you're supposed to tell me that you love the one that I love, too. You know, just to respect mm. the I did. Oh, yeah. I do love it. I meant right after I said mine, but it's okay. Oh, it's too late now. <laughs> no, you just said it now, so I guess it counts. Ah, clip it in. Anyway, guys, hope you enjoyed this little venture of ours. Hope you look forward to more of these of this series. Uh, it won't be really a dedicated release time for them because it'll take time to, to talk about the specific ones, to gather enough of our uh, favorite versions of them, adaptations, as it were. And, but you know what? hope you really enjoyed. And with that, I'll go ahead and close the curtain on this episode right here and the first of this Heroes, Tales, Myths, and Legends. And we're covering the iconic Treasure Island, by us, Residential Video Idiots.
My name is Joe. My name is Sean. And we will see y'all later. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.